Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 150 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, congrats, Pat, on this milestone when we started this during the pandemic on the first Sunday in, the Janu- in January of 2021. Who knew where it would go? But uh, we've reached uh, 150 episodes. Very good. Congratulations. This week is- Thank you for agreeing to do this all this time. Yeah, yeah. It's been, been fun. And this week is a bonus, a milestone bonus. We have three cases. We told you that things might slow down. Uh Last week, for whatever reason, that was not the case. Uh, the first case today is from the Illinois Appellate Court, 4th District, Danielson versus Weimelt. The second case today is Clanton versus Oakbrook Healthcare Center Limited from the Illinois Supreme Court. And the third case today that we'll cover is the Illinois, from the Illinois Appellate Court, 1st District, Green versus State of Illinois. Turning to our first case, pick your poison. That was a statement of the circuit court judge to counsel for plaintiff and Danielson versus Weimolt at the trial following his decision to deny a motion to eliminate that would have barred the defendant from eliciting evidence of the plaintiff's prior injury to her knee. Relying on Voikin versus the state of DeBoer, 192 Illinois 2nd 49 from 2000, the plaintiff argued that in, a, in the absence of the defendant offering expert testimony linking the plaintiff's current condition to the prior injury, evidence of the prior injury should be barred. Picking his poison and determining that since the evidence was going to come in anyway, counsel for plaintiff elicited the testimony himself. He then filed a motion for directed verdict and motion for judgment notwithstanding the verdict, which were denied. He previously filed a motion for summary judgment, which, which was also denied. At oral argument, counsel for plaintiff argued that the standard of review was de novo and that the cumulative errors by the court warranted reversal in a new trial. However, Justices Doherty and Steigman pointed to the following language of the Boykin decision, quote, we conclude that if a defendant wishes to introduce evidence that the plaintiff has suffered a prior injury, whether to the same part of the body or not, the defendant must introduce expert evidence demonstrating why the prior injury is relevant to causation, damages, or some other issue of consequence. This rule applies unless the trial court and its discretion determines that the nature of the the natures of the prior and current injuries are such that a lay person can readily appraise the relationship, if any, between those injuries without expert assistance. End quote. They also questioned counsel for plaintiff closely on how he can now be heard to complain where he admitted the testimony that he is now objecting to, as that is waiver. Justice Steigman also questioned counsel for the defendant about why the plaintiff should be held to the waiver and would not justice be better served by deciding the issue on the merits. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. And this is a, a real lesson, I think. Uh, I'm going to preview a little bit of where I think this is going to come out, but I don't think it's much of a shock having listened to the oral argument. A real lesson in how to, what you have to do if you get a ruling that's adverse. And that is, you just have to deal with it. And dealing with it doesn't mean 
introducing the evidence yourself, I don't think. Um, that doesn't seem to be on the menu. Uh, it, 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 and if it is, then that's going to really turn uh, Illinois practice, and I imagine practice in the vast majority of other states, on their head. Um, so what happened is plaintiff's counsel gets the – well, let me go back to the facts. The lady injured her knee. She to- never told her treating doctor about this knee injury. They, the defendant digs up that there was a prior knee injury that wasn't disclosed. They impe- they're going to impeach her with it. They're going to impeach the doctor with it because he said, you know, I've got no evidence of a prior injury. This injury is related solely to this incident that's at issue in this case. Um, and the, the court, the circuit court said, I'm going to I'm going to let this testimony come in. Uh, and I don't care if the defendant doesn't have an expert or not. And plaintiff's counsel was relying upon that first sentence that Dan read from the Voikin case. And Justices Doherty and Steigerman are like, no, 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 you got to read this next sentence. Because <laughs> what plaintiff's counsel was arguing is that it's a de novo review. It's an error. It's an error of law. When they don't have an expert, they it's an error to let the evidence in. And Judge Doherty and Steigman are like, no, you got to read the next sentence. And the next sentence is that rule applies unless the trial court, and here's the key words, in its discretion, determines that the natures of the prior prior and current injuries are such that a lay person could readily appraise the relationship. And I want to go back to our first episode, Dan. Do you remember the title of the first episode? No No Reasonable Judge. Because we were talking about the abusive discretion standard in that case, in the context of a, a, tra- a forum nonconvenience. In this case, it's the admission of evidence, which usually is a question of law. But in this case, the court made a discretion, that, at least it seems, that the trial court made a, a discretionary ruling and said, no, no, this is a question. Uh, this is uh, in his discretion. He said the jury can figure this out on their own. They don't need experts. And the defense can use this as impeachment uh, or substantive evidence, as the case may be. And, ar- and argue that uh, the the plaintiff said, okay, you know, the better tactic is usually to, you know, let off the grenade yourself, let the bad thing happen uh, on your uh, not on cross, is it because that way it doesn't look like you're hiding anything, and you just front it, and by fronting it, you avoid the problem. Well, I don't know what the verdict was, but it seems it went against the plaintiff in some regard, and maybe yeah. there was a judge, maybe this was. It was unclear if there was a judgment against the defendant and it just wasn't as much as the plaintiff wanted or if it was a defense verdict entirely finding there was no injury to the plaintiff or, or what it happened to be. But in any event, it was the, def- the plaintiff that was appealing this verdict. Um, Dan, did you get a sense of what the actual verdict was? I, I, I did not. I did, okay. I did not. Other than the plaintiff wasn't happy with it. Um, and so the issue now arises, is there waiver? Was there an abuse of discretion and so forth? Now, I think Justice Steigman went after defense counsel pretty good and said, why should we apply a waiver? Why is that fair? And I think right. he was playing with him. I mean, I, think, I really think he was playing with him <laughs> because I, I, I just is like it would, it would turn the world on its head if you're allowed to do what plaintiff's counsel did here. And I get the bad position he was put in if it turns out that the court – if the court got it wrong. But – I think he was relying too much on the standard of uh, a de novo review. And I think he wasn't, um, and he just needed to stand on this, 
this doesn't come in, this doesn't come in, this doesn't come in. And you just have to deal with that. And if that's going to be your position, then you're stuck with it. And you can't, you know, zig and zag and decide that you're going to be able to do on appeal what you refuse to do at the circuit court level. Um, I get that he was put in a bad spot. I get that he tried time and again to keep this evidence out. He, you know, tried on a motion for summary judgment, directed verdict, JNOV, on appeal. I mean, he's tried a motion to eliminate. He's tried every which way he can. But if you if you don't object when the evidence is entered, or in this case, if you actually enter the evidence yourself, then I don't know how you can I I, I don't know how that can be heard to be a problem. Um, you, you just can't do that. Um, so we'll see how the court, maybe the court finds that it was an abuse of discretion to let this evidence in. I kind of doubt it, um, that, that the court's going to find that to be the case. Uh, Dan, what, what, what are your thoughts? Anything to add there? No, I agree with you, Pat. I think, you know, he, he was put in a bad spot. He tried everything, but yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work. Right. Sometimes, uh. It just doesn't work out for you, and I think it's a tough road ahead. Yeah, and, and so what you do is you just create your record. You make sure the judge knows you're creating your record, and hopefully they give you the opportunity to do that. And to the extent they don't, then you make your record of them not letting you make your record. Uh, and right. you just you just go forth and you do everything you can to try to, whether it's introducing jury instructions, filing motions, objecting, whatever it is, you do all those things and then some. Uh, to try to get to try to preserve the issue, so no one can say that you didn't do it. But you, you can't very if you put your eggs in the basket. Okay, I'm gonna then you're kind of stuck, and I, and I think that right. plans council is kind of stuck uh, with this. Uh, so with that, so. we'll take our first break and come back uh, with Clanton versus Oakbrook Healthcare. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment two of episode 150 of the Podium and Panel podcast and the split between the first and fourth districts of the Illinois Appellate Court on whether a termination on death clause on a nursing home contract applies to the arbitration provision will be resolved when the Illinois Supreme Court decides Clanton versus Oakbrook Healthcare Center LTD. In Clanton, the first district held that the termination on death clause applied to the arbitration provision, while in Mason versus St. Vincent, the 4th District held that it did not. Counsel for the defendant petitioner argued that following the Illinois Supreme Court's decision in Carter versus SSC Odin Operating Company, 212 IL 113204, that arbitration only applies to Survival Act claims that accrue before the death of the resident. The termination on death provision does not preclude arbitration of those claims, even if the claim must be filed after the death of the resident. So it's this distinction that the court's drawn between when the survival count accrues and when the wrongful death count accrues. As a secondary issue, the appellee responded, argued that the arbitration clause was not enforceable as the agreement was executed by the resident's health care power of attorney. Uh, 
The argument is that the health care power of attorney does not have the authority to agree to arbitration as the arbitration provision does not relate to health care of the resident. Distinguishing this case from more recent cases on the topic is that the case occurred before CMS forbade arbitration clauses from being a condition of admission or continued residency at a health care facility. Uh, Dan, tell us about this argument in which Michael Rathsack might have given the shortest oral argument before any court ever. I was going to mention that he, uh, in some of these cases we've covered, Patty's covered a lot of these uh, nursing home cases uh, for plaintiffs. It seems like that's maybe his focus, although maybe he's working on other stuff, but the cases that we've uh, heard him in, he's on these it's cases. At least, it's at least five. Yeah. It's crazy. He's got all these. He's got the market cornered. I, I saw him at, a, at an event, and I didn't get a chance to ask him, you know, or talk to him, but uh, would have liked to. I also, I, I, I think I mentioned to you, I know both uh, both counsel here, counsel for the uh, appellant here, uh, Carter Corey, former uh, law partner of mine when we were uh, Corey Cotter, Heather Richardson, uh, Cor- Corey Cotter, Heather Richardson, I guess, and uh, KCHR. And uh, as you mentioned, the, the argument here uh, was was that these form contracts, they, they had provisions. And as uh, Corey mentioned at the arguments, uh, these are service contracts. So like any service contract, the, the concept is, is that they terminate on death because there's no services to be provided when somebody's on the, is these assisted, listening, assisted living places. Uh, is no longer there. Either they moved or or they're passed away. And uh, some discussion here in this case uh, of uh, exactly what that means. Uh, you wrote about you, you had written a column, I think, about the appellate case. Uh, and what you started with was that that sound you hear is the rewriting of a lot of nursing home contracts with arbitration clauses. Or it could be the sound of a petition for leave to appeal being written, given that there's now a conflict between the Illinois Appellate District. So you, uh, you predicted this. Um, you mentioned the CMS rules. That it wasn't a hard prediction. No, no. <laughs> but I'm not going to take credit that. for. I'll take credit on hard ones, but not this one. This was this was one you could see coming from a mile away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, so, so the. Uh, uh, the, the, the uh, a lot of talk about the case law uh, pad in this case, and uh, as you mentioned again, the, the, the probably the shortest uh, the shortest <laughs> appearance by Michael Rasak. He does this often. He he'll say, you know, this is a pretty simple case. It's it's uh, the, this is how it goes uh, for his client. He's arguing that this arbitration provision doesn't apply. Uh, Justice Cunningham at one point asked uh, Carter Corey uh, who drafted it, and then I think Justice Tice did as well. There's a lot of talk about uh, the fact that uh, the nursing home drafted this language, and Justice Cunningham, I think think it was her that point blank asked, you know, couldn't you have said that the arbitration provision survives the termination of the agreement, right? It says that this agreement terminates upon death, Etc. And uh, the the argument of of Corey for the appellant was uh, this this concept that uh, 
there, if, if you read the provisions together, the arbitration provision, the survivability, the termination provisions, um, there may be some ambiguity in them, uh, but that the strong public policy of, of enforcing arbitration provisions uh, should override in this case. And as you and, you and I talked about, Pat, uh, you know, the real question about whether or not there's a strong public policy to enforce arbitration provisions or that it's just a practice that they're enforced because they're in there. And, and if there's an arbitration provision, the, the Federal Arbitration Act and the Supreme Court of the United States and, and the Illinois Supreme Court and other courts, if there is a, an arbitration provision, uh, it's deemed to be enforceable as, you know, a contract provision. Uh, but whether whether there's a strong public policy for that is open to question. And then in response to that, I think Justices O'Brien, Justice Tice, and Justice Cunningham all, all uh, pushed back a little bit and said, well, uh, isn't, isn't the rule that ambiguities in contracts, again, these are form contracts, whatever they are, the nursing home adopted them. There was no kind of input by the the uh, residents, right, in, in putting this together. And uh, again, the, the, the argument back was that the, the strong public policy trumps the uh, uh, ambiguity uh, provisions. You mentioned CMS, and there was a little bit of a talk about that, CMS at some point, uh, as we've talked about in these other cases, uh, has pr prohibited and put a rule in place that says you can't uh, insist upon uh, having uh, arbitration as a condition of, of admittance. The, the one thing that wasn't clear here, although it, it didn't sound like the, the, that was a condition of admission, according to the very short uh, discussion by, by Michael, uh, was uh, that, that this agreement, uh, whether or not it, it, it mandated that somebody uh, sign the agreement. And, and so the secondary issue in this case and I think the only thing that RASAC really talked about was power of attorney. And we've talked about power of attorneys in these contexts as well, and whether somebody could uh, uh, have power of attorney uh, for health purposes, whether or not the arbitration arbitration provision uh, is part and parcel of, of that power of attorney. So uh, Trying to think if there's anything else in this case. I mean, there's a the, 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 they, they, as you mentioned, Pat, that there's a case in the fourth district. Um, it sounded like from the from the justices uh, that there may have been some different facts in that case um, and, and a different uh, situation. So it'll be interesting to see how the court rules on this because it seems like nursing home cases and these arbitration provisions are another. Uh, area where litigation just doesn't stop in this arena. We, we see, you know, these, these cases constantly being uh, uh, addressed at the appellate level. Uh, so hopefully the Supreme Court this gets some will, this clarity. This will bring some resolution to a fair amount of that. They might touch on both issues just to, because there's these issues are constantly percolating, so they may just deal with it. Uh, and this would resolve a lot of those problems, quote, problems. Yeah. And it would uh, the you you'd get a modification of the termination on death clauses, uh, which was the fatal problem here. And you're going to get the, I don't know how the nursing homes deal with a situation where 
the healthcare power of attorney, if they rule that the healthcare power of attorney can't execute these things, I'm not sure what their way around that is. Um, I don't either. Because that's pretty common, I think. Yeah, but they could insist on the person having an actual power of attorney. Yeah. So that they would have the authority to have plenary authority to waive uh, the right, you know, to require arbitration. So there's, um, it doesn't say they have to be, all the, all the CMS, as I understand it, says is you have to have, you can't, you can't require them to arbitrate. Doesn't mean you can't say the person who signs it has to have power, complete power of attorney and right. then get them complete power of attorney. And then when they sign the arbitration clause, they're stuck. Um, that might be the way around it. Uh, I don't know how feasible that is. I doubt it's really feasible, but it's some creative lawyer is going to come up with something uh, because keeping these things, at least the survival, as much as you can in arbitration is, is really critical. What plays into this is, is what's important here is, or that's going on in Springfield right now is there has been an amendment to the, uh, wrongful death act that has passed the both houses of the general assembly that allows yep. punitive damages in wrongful death cases. And so that was one issue that the court had said many years ago at around the same time of the Odin case of the SSC Odin case was that you couldn't get punitive damages in these cases. Well, that's about to change. <laughs> so the issue there is going to be accrual date. Does it apply to currently pending in cases that have already accrued or does it apply only the cases going forward. I don't think it's very clear, but you can expect that you're going to see punitive damages be pled in these cases. Um, and uh, that's going to be in wrong, the wrongful death aspect of the case. And that's going to really uh, impact the situation. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with uh, Green versus State of Illinois. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 150 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Can the alleged murder of a citizen by state troopers during a traffic stop entitle the Illinois State Police and the trooper to sovereign immunity, requiring the action to be brought in the court of claims instead of the circuit court? The word murder is used specifically because that is what the plaintiff alleged in the complaint. That is the question to be addressed when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Green versus State of Illinois. The plaintiff alleges that during his traffic stop, two state troopers came into the vehicle to arrest the deceased and that he, he was shot in the back He wasn't deceased at that time, though. No, he was alive. <laughs> he was alive. And, and breathing. Yep. He, uh, he, he didn't exit the vehicle <laughs> alive. They did. Uh, at oral argument, counsel for the plaintiff claimed that the gun used to kill the deceased was the gun recovered from the car that the deceased was in. And at the time of the shooting... Uh, counsel for plaintiff further claimed that contrary to the trooper's statements following the incident, the deceased was unarmed and could not have been struggling with the troopers for the gun at the time of the shooting because the deceased was shot in the back of the head. The circuit court dismissed the case, finding that sovereign immunity applied, which divested the court of subject matter jurisdiction 
and required the claim to be filed in the Court of Claims. The case hinges on whether the trooper's conduct was related to their legitimate law enforcement activities, which the plaintiff contends they could not be because murder, the intentional killing of another without lawful justification, as alleged, is not simply use of force, and it can never be within the legitimate activities of a peace officer. There are substantial issues regarding the allegations of the operative complaint, the timing of the request to file a Third Amendment complaint, and an oral argument counsel laid out additional facts that were not in the complaints that were filed or in the proposed Third Amendment complaint. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. I think the best way to start with the discussion of oral argument is where plaintiff's counsel started, and that was by two examples he gave at the opening uh, of things that he claimed would, and I think the court agreed, would plainly not be um, uh, subject to sovereign immunity defense. And the first is that the, the troopers go in and get to a wellness check and to go check on this elderly couple. And while they're in the, in the house, they find all these jewels and art and gold and whatnot. And they find the couple and they find the couple's okay. And before they leave, though, they go and take all the art, the jewels, the gold and everything. And the argument was, well, that wouldn't be covered by sovereign immunity. And a officer goes and uh, he, he arrests a woman who's intoxicated and he's taken her to the lockup. And before he gets there, he rapes her. He said, well, that wouldn't be covered by sovereign immunity. So how is murder covered by sovereign immunity was his argument. And that really highlights the issue with the hypotheticals because the question is a line drawing problem. Where is the line where it's within the scope of one's duties that is covered by sovereign immunity and where is it not? If it's within the scope of the duty, then it's protected by sovereign immunity. If it's not, then it's not. And the argument is that it can't possibly be the case that murder is within the scope of the duties of a peace officer. That's the that's really it in a nutshell. Yep. Um, and I, I get the facial attraction of it. Um, it's hard to conceive how it could be. Uh, but the problem arises. Law enforcement officers are allowed to exercise force as part of their job. That's certainly on the menu of things they can do. Now, the question is, is it justified? Is it reasonable? Is it not excessive? And so forth. But this, but the claim here is, is that based upon how they've tried to plead it, is this was just murder because they weren't struggling for the gun. He was shot in the back of the head. There, um, there, there was, there was no struggle for the gun, and the gun that was used was the gun that re- they retrieved from the car, not the service weapon. Um, this. Uh, Incident apparently was on body body worn camera, but you can't see the actual shooting. Apparently, you can see whatever happened. Um, but at this stage of the pleading, we're stuck with what is pled, and it seemed that there were a fair number of facts that uh, were elucidated at the oral argument that weren't or set forth in the oral argument that weren't in the in the pleadings, which is a real problem, um, because plaintiffs are simply relying on. We alleged murder. Whether it was justified or not, as the state claims, is a question of fact for the jury. We've, you know, that's not a conclusion. That's uh, that's a factual allegation, and I'm not sure I buy that. 
that particular, you know, saying that this is murder. Well, that's a legal conclusion. It's a conclusion of fact. Um, but you're going to have to put some facts behind that to get right. to a jury. And I don't know if they've got, if they've alleged enough facts. I think they may have them, but I'm not sure they've alleged them. Um, and the remedy here is not that the case goes away. The, the remedy here is it goes to the Court of Claims, which is obviously a far more favorable venue for the state than is the um, than would be the circuit court. Now, uh, there's also a manner of claims that they would bring that they uh, that they may not be able to bring in the Court of Claims, but they could bring in the circuit court, this kind of thing. There was a, I, when I posted about this, someone said, well, why do they sue in federal court? Well, they can't. You can't sue the state under the 11th Amendment in federal court uh, unless they consent to it, and they're not going to consent to it. Right. Uh, well, why don't you sue them under 1983? Well, you could do that, but you couldn't sue the state again. You could only sue the officers, and then you just run into qualified immunity as a defense, and that's not likely to be very successful. And when you lose your qualified immunity defense, you're done altogether. At least here, they get it. They at least get to get to the court of claims. Um, so that's the reason I think they filed in state court is because they had a. Mu- I think they had a much better chance. Uh, going back to our first segment, pick your poison. They picked their poison. And this poison isn't nearly as poisonous as filing in federal court, where you're dealing with state actors. Right. Um, by state actors, I mean state of Illinois, as in not CPD or you know Cook County Sheriff, but employees of the state. And that's one of the arguments that plaintiffs make, is that why would troopers, simply by dint of the fact that they're uh, officers of the state, that are not officers of the state, but that they're employees of the state, officers not the right word, employees of the state, how are they... Um, why do they get more protection simply by dint of who they work for? With regards to this, whether they were within their scope or not, this uh, stop apparently occurred not on the interstate, which is usually the area where the troopers get to go, but within within the city of Harvey on one of the surface streets. Why they were there is a is a matter of dispute. Whether they had what authority, if any, they had there. The state obviously argued, hey, these guys have authority everywhere. Yes, it's their normal billet to be on the interstates but uh, and, and the major highways, but they get to go here too, and this is not a problem. Uh, there's no question that the stop was legitimate itself, even though it was for some minor infraction. Um, there's no, no dispute that the stop was legitimate itself, so this is not, uh, this is not like a, a Fourth Amendment claim in that regard. Certainly the shooting could have been a Fourth Amendment claim. Um, but that really isn't their, their, their claims are based on assault and battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress, things of this nature. I don't think they have a constitutional claim of the Fourth Amendment because they don't need one because they're not alleging, they're, they're not alleging, uh, um, they're not, not, not alleging 1983 violation. They're right. alleging, uh, an assault and battery. They're alleging murder. Um, so they don't need to allege, uh, they don't need to allege a Fourth Amendment violation, but it seems that. The, whether they were within their scope, that goes to what the, 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 the propriety of the stop goes to whether they were within the scope to help inform the sovereign immunity um, discussion. Uh, had the opportunity, I was at an event um, about a book called Shielded by Joanna Schwartz, who's a law professor at UCLA and the leading, um, uh, one of the leading, if not the leading expert on qualified immunity, which obviously is not an issue in this case. The, they came to the event. Uh, it was interesting to hear the gentleman speak, uh, at least from their perspective. Then I listened to the oral argument. Uh, 
but uh, it, it'll be very interesting to see how this case comes out. The justices were extremely engaged justices. Johnson, Mikva, and Taylor uh, were very engaged uh, with the hypotheticals. Justice Taylor was particularly focused on the adequacy of the pleading, and he was concerned that the things hadn't been adequately pled. Justice Mikva was all over the hypotheticals and where to draw the line. And I can't remember what Justice Johnson's particular focus was, but she was in there too with argument with, you know, maybe on all of the issues, trying to figure out what, uh, what, whether this can, where the proper way or where this case belongs. Uh, it's a very close question. Um, another wrinkle is, is that the case was dismissed and then on reconsideration, the court said, yep, I got it wrong the last time, but I'm still dismissing your case. Uh, I misapplied the law, but you still got, you still don't get anywhere. Okay, uh, I can see where plaintiffs' counsel is a little uh, a little annoyed with that. Uh, he's like, hold it now, you, you you got it wrong, and then you got it, and then you got it wrong again. You got, and in fact, he said, when you corrected yourself, you got it worse the second. You got it wrong. You got it wrong worse the second time. So he's he was very animated, uh, and uh, it was it was it was a very interesting argument. It's it, it's worth it's worth the listen. Dan, what are your thoughts? No, I agree with you, Pat. Very interesting argument and uh, interesting facts here. And uh, like I said, qualified immunity is not an uh, issue here. But uh, as we've talked about, these cases are tough. And, you know, court of claims is, you know, like you said, there's a viable option there potentially. that It has uh, different limits and different constraints. But uh, sometimes cases that are uh, uh, required to go there. And uh, so... They, they may have an option, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how the court handles this. So that brings us to our BI for COVID. Nothing this week, uh, given what's out there. We'll, you know, what we, you know, from Oregon or for whatever's going to happen from the Ninth Circuit, California, we'll leave it on the list, but uh, of segments we have, but uh, we'll, we'll need to, uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, that brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong. We were three and one this week. We were good until the, until the Kalunga case came out on Friday, we were three and zero, and now we're three and one for the week. And then there's another case that I discussed while Dan was gone that I didn't pick, and it's good I didn't because I would have got it wrong. So uh, that uh, <laughs> Dan might have got it right, but I would have got it wrong. Uh, so let's go through these. Uh, oh, by the way, we are now two fifteen. Dan is two fifteen, fifty and fourteen. I am two twelve, fifty three and fourteen. Still very very pleased with our records. The yeah. first one is o- AOJ Operations versus Offit from the 5th District. We discussed on episode 128. And what I love about this case is it's re- it's it's a dispute amongst owners of uh, uh, nursing homes that are disputing whether they have to arbitrate or not. So right. when, I, when I posted about <laughs> this on LinkedIn, I said, you know, plaintiff's attorneys are going to love the shot in front of this is nursing homeowners arguing about an enforceability of an arbitration clause when they've been fighting arbitration clauses in this context for decades uh, and or slightly different context, but with these people uh, right. and here, the court held that, yep, this has to be arbitrated. And what's <laughs> really important here is that they held that the, the, the case was filed in Champaign County and they moved to transfer it to Vermillion and the plaintiff said, hold it, You've waived your objection to uh, to have this case arbitrated because you filed a motion to change venue, and the court said no. There's nothing wrong with moving to change venue to get the case in the right venue. 
uh, before you uh, file your motion to dismiss because the case has to be arbitrated. They also didn't address this cockamamie argument. I'm going to use my grandmother's word cockamamie argument that somehow the, the arbitration clauses didn't apply to the people that were signing them on behalf of whether they were on behalf of the corporation or not. It was the most right. ridiculous thing I ever heard. And I've heard a lot of ridiculous things. In fact, I may have said some of the ridiculous things, but uh, uh, it, 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 too, uh, it, was, it turns out. It was and, absurd. Yeah, it was an absurd argument. They didn't even address it, thankfully. Uh, but so that that was a good win. And it's uh, a friend of mine and a, and a fellow uh, member of the board of the Illinois Defense Council, uh, John Watson. This was uh, his case. And uh, so he, he won that one. Congratulations to John. Um, the next one we did make a prediction on was Dupuis versus Riverside. This is one of the strangest opinions I've ever read. Did you read this opinion, Dan? Did you cut? I, I did. To? I skimmed was it, it not yeah. strange? It was very strange. What struck you as strange? Uh, I'm just trying to think now. but Almost yeah. the entire opinion is quotes from the depositions. It's a 16-page opinion, and I swear 14 of it are quotes. It was. Because the, this is the yeah. case where the lady says she could she wasn't clear on whether she fell or whether she could remember. I'm sorry, not whether she fell, where she fell, whether she could remember it. At various points, she said she gave three answers to a question that only has two alternatives. And she's just all over the place. And the circuit court held that it was a judicial admission. She didn't know where she fell. And the appellate court's like, yeah, that's not a judicial admission. And she's all over the place. And as a consequence, go, go have a trial about where she fell. Um, so plaintiff's lawyers, counsel your witnesses to be as unclear and as long as they say something, that's, that'll be good enough because they can be just all over the, just make a hash of the thing. I can't wait to hear about the examination of this woman at trial because I don't know what she's going to say. Um, but this also points to when someone says they don't remember, or they don't, if they say they don't know, that's a different thing. But they say they don't remember, you got to follow up with, is there anything that would refresh your recollection? And I don't know if that question was asked. Because if all of a sudden they come up with, oh, hallelujah, I have the answer. And he's like, well, where'd that come from? Because I asked you before, if you remembered, you said no. And you said, I asked if you had anything to refresh your because you said no. What refresher? Well, my lawyer told me. Oh, I'm sure he did. Uh, so that's, uh, th- that's good impeachment, too. Uh, you kind of foreclose that if you get that question in. Because I've never once had someone say to me, oh, if I had XYZ document, that would refresh my recollection. Right. Because if they did, I'd say, well, let's go get that document. Let's let's go get right. that, whatever that thing is that will refresh your recollection. Because that will help. Um, if, if you remembered the thing that would refresh your recollection, you typically would remember the thing. So there is no thing, usually. But... Uh, so that's the follow-up. Dan, uh, that's enough of me talking. Why don't you tell us about Cleeton versus SIU, which uh, we also got right from episode 143. Sure. And the, the, uh, the, the, this was a case uh, t- uh, to convert the respondent in discovery to a defendant uh, pursuant to section 2-402 of the Code of Civil Procedure. The circuit court had denied a motion but uh, finding that the plaintiff did not present sufficient evidence to convert the respondent in discovery to a defendant. The appellate court affirmed the decision uh, of the circuit court. And then uh, the Supreme Court of Illinois uh, reversed the judgment of the appellate court 
and remanded the case to the circuit court for further proceedings consistent with the opinion. The uh, Illinois Trial Lawyers Association had filed an amicus uh, brief in support of the plaintiff's position. Uh, a number of parties filed amicus briefs in support of the position taken by the doctor, including the Illinois State Medical Society, American Medical Association, and the Illinois Association of Defense Trial Council. And uh, so we'll probably see this again because the court uh, uh, reversed and remanded it uh, to, uh, for further consideration of whether whether this was well, appropriate. No, he gets this at is, uh, No, he gets at it. He gets at it. He, he's but. added as a defendant now. So the court, the question was whether there was probable cause and whether the yeah. 622 affidavit of merit sufficed as, quote, probable cause, which is a criminal law term being used in the civil context. And it, in the 40-some years of this statute, near 50, never, it had never been interpreted. Yeah. It had never been interpreted. And the court said, yeah, he's got enough. Because why would the standard be higher for conversion than it was for naming of the defendant in the first instance where the plaintiff has a burden of uh, of providing an affidavit of merit in a medical malpractice case. Um, the plaintiff told tales of, you know, an argument, if you recall, the plaintiff said, if we win this, if we lose this case, defendants aren't going to like this because this is going to mean every doctor is going to get named and section 402 is going to be a dead letter. And right. the court certainly spoke to that in their, in their opinion and said, yeah, we really think that's a problem. So uh, what's interesting is, is if anyone knows the answer to this, I would love it. I was looking for the amicus briefs on the court's website. They're not there. This round of opinions, they didn't publish or post the amicus briefs as they have going back years. Wonder so why. if anyone knows why that didn't happen, if it was just an oversight or some new policy, it's helpful to have the amicus briefs when you go listen to the arguments to know what the, uh, what the various parties had to say. And it would be nice to know. Uh, now I happen to have the access to the IDC's uh, amicus brief. Uh, full disclosure: I didn't write the brief, but I certainly voted on whether we should have such a brief, and I was able to get access to the brief and read what was being said, at least by them. But I wasn't able to see what uh, ISME and the AMA had to say, which I would have liked to see if they filed a separate brief or a joint brief or what they had to say, because the perspective from the doctors would have been interesting. I, I know I kind of know what it, what ITLA had to say because the the IDC brief was directed right at the ITLA brief, not surprisingly, yeah. um, and so we kind of have an idea what. But I would have liked to have read that, read their brief too, and find out what they had to say. Um, so with that, that brings us to uh, Buchanan versus Cook County Sheriff's Board, and it turns out Mr. Flaxman's statement that the underlying proceeding was a fraud and a sham or whatever it was, uh, at least the appellate court agreed it wasn't any good. Uh, so this fellow, right. there's right. four deputies, correctional officers with the Cook County Sheriff's Office that got discharged as a result of an incident of sexual assault that doesn't appear to have occurred. Four of them got discharged. Three of them, their discharge was upheld. This guy gets his job back with full back pay. That's a nice day's work uh, by Flaxman uh, to get his guy's job back and with back pay. Um, and... Uh, they didn't, we, if you recall, when we discussed this on episode 148, the court mentioned the um, standard and uh, the, the Cook, it was Cook County versus Moore was the case that uh, Flaxman was relying on to say that the standard, you can only look at what the uh, merit board did or the underlying agency did. And the court said, we're not going to address that question. 
And then you know what they did? They only looked at the finding of the the reasoning for the. So they kind of did what they said they weren't going to do, uh, which was which was uh, which was interesting. But uh, they didn't resolve that issue directly. They kind of indirectly because of what they actually wrote in their opinion. So very interesting uh, case there. Um, goes through a lot of procedures, things I didn't know about how the the jail works in the suburban courthouses and bring people into and out of the various these adjoining courtrooms and the the musical chairs they have to play with the inmates uh, where they can put them and making sure they keep the sexes apart and apparently that didn't happen here and the allegation from the woman is that she was sexually assaulted by the two men and the allegation of the two men was that they were sexually assaulted by the woman which is somewhat interesting uh, yeah. but in any event this guy uh, the issue here was not with the sexual assault but whether Marvin Buchanan gets a job back Marvin Buchanan gets a job back. So we got that one right, too. Now we get to the one we got wrong. And I am shocked that we got this wrong. I, I'm probably more shocked, that, and based upon the oral argument, that we got this one wrong more than any other one we've got wrong. Uh, this is Columna versus Advocate Healthcare. Uh, this is, we discussed this on episode 147. This is the case where the lady uh, is assaulted by this criminal who kills her, cuts out her baby, claims to be the mother, takes the, the baby, goes to the hospital. She makes healthcare decisions. And the father finds out two weeks later that his son is alive, yeah, son is alive, and brings claims for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Dan, tell us what the appellate court had to say. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, two questions here uh, that were, were certified: Can a cause of action for intentional infliction of emotional distress be stated against a defendant allegedly engaging in the outrageous conduct toward a plaintiff who is unknown to the defendant? And who is not present at the time of the purportedly outrageous conduct. The uh, court answered the first certified question in a negative, so that that's not uh, a defendant can have no liability for intentional infliction of emotional distress to a plaintiff who is unknown and not present, which makes sense as we talked about. The whole thing of intentional infliction of emotional distress is that you uh, affect somebody. It's intentional. And directed at somebody, you know, or, or recklessly. Uh, the second question was, can a cause of action for intentional infliction of emotional distress be stated based on purported failures to perform certain acts, i.e. nonfeasance, versus intentional active performance of certain acts, i.e. malfeasance? Uh, and they said the second question is moot. So that's, We thought uh, they were going to dig this. Yep. And as we saw, um, there was a recent... 308 opinion. I can't remember which district it was from, but that got digged by the Illinois appellate court. In fact, they used that term, uh, dismissed yeah. as improvidently granted. I thought that for sure they were going to, but they didn't. Uh, Ju- Justice Mitchell, who was the most vociferous in his criticisms of the question and how could they decide this without the facts, is the one who wrote the opinion and said, uh, t- tells you, be careful what you draw from oral argument is what that tells you. Because uh, he was just, it seemed to be incredulous at the idea that they were going to be able to decide this case uh, on these certified questions. And maybe it was more annoyance with the, the style of argument than it was the the merits yeah. of the situation. But he went through and they said, yeah, you, you got to, you got to, not here. They weren't directed at him. They didn't know his existence and so forth. So a lot of predictions sure to go wrong this week. Uh, yeah. Uh, mostly went right. So that was good. Yeah, uh, Dan. That brings us to the rule of the week. What do you think? Well, first we have the predictions. You always forget. Oh yeah, we. I always do. I've done this like the last 
like half dozen episodes. All right. <laughs> Danielson. Danielson versus Weebelt. Affirmed? Affirmed. Uh, Clanton versus Oakbrook. Uh, affirmed? Affirmed. Yeah. And Green versus State of Illinois. It's getting reversed. I think so. Yep. Yeah. They're going to give him another chance to plead it, maybe. I think um, so. Yeah. I agree. All right, so that brings us to the rule of the week. Dan, why don't you introduce this for us? Sure. And today's rule of the week is is uh, shadow dockets. Pat, uh, you found one from the Illinois Supreme Court. Tell us about that, and then I'll talk about the at the Supreme Court of the United States. So this docket is so shadow, it's not posted. It's not posted. So let's 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 deal with this. The uh, um, the as you we may I think we may have talked about this on the show. A case called Prieto versus Rush University. And in that case, the uh, circuit court held Rush University in contempt, struck their pleadings, held them in default, and ordered the trial to go on damages only with regards to um, Rush. In other words, the most severe of severe sanctions that you can enter for a discovery violation. And the appellate court, strike that, the Supreme Court, on an exercise of its supervisory authority. So what had to have happened here is it seems it went to the appellate court. Appellate court didn't give any relief. And then they filed a motion, uh, a writ of of supervision, I think it's how it's called, uh, or a petition for writ of supervision. Uh, And they asked for the supervisory writ and the Supreme Court entered it. It vacated the... uh, Finding of contempt with regard and the vacated the sanction and ordered this the the circuit court to enter a finding of friendly contempt, which will then facilitate the appeal on whether they have to produce these audit trail the audit trails or not. Uh, in other words, it is a substantial victory for the hospital, um, and it's and it's shadow docket because it wasn't done on the merits docket and it ain't even posted. Um, I found out about it uh, on Thursday, and it's a it's the same day they decided the Clayton case. So uh, big doings, um, a very important uh, a very important issue. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about the Supreme? Usually, where we talk about Supreme Court shadow dockets, it's the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, the Supreme Court, the Illinois Supreme Court, doesn't usually do shadow docket. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. But this is one of those rare circumstances. Their supervisory authority, by the way, comes from the Illinois Constitution, which gives yes. them plenary supervisory authority over the entirety of the judicial branch. And this was exercise of that authority. So, Dan, why don't you tell us about your shadow docket issues? Sure, sure. There's a new book out by Steve Vladek from the University of Texas. He, uh, It's his first book. Uh, and it's called The Shadow Docket. And it's a... It's a very interesting book because it talks about how kind of the development of it. It talks about 1973 and and the use of the shadow docket and whether to continue bombing Cambodia and uh, the whole fight where Thurgood Marshall had issued an opinion uh, because the court was in summer recess. And then uh, folks flew out to uh, Washington to meet with uh, William Douglas, who was the senior uh, justice. And uh, he came down from his cabin up in the mountains to uh, the courthouse, heard arguments, issued his own opinion. And then uh, there was a second or third opinion by Marshall. And, and uh, what ended up happening was, was the continued bombing of Cambodia for the eight days before the, 
uh, end of end of it. I think it was eight days. Um, it just goes through the history of, of kind of the shadow docket and how it's developed. It's become, uh, we've talked about it some, I think, on, on this show in terms of some of the cases that have come out from the Supreme Court. And just like in the Illinois Supreme Court with the, the process of the shadow docket uh, at the Supreme Court of the United States uh, is a process where oftentimes they uh, circumvent the normal procedures of, of district court going to a Court of Appeals and then up to the Supreme Court. Uh, these cases are often just one sentence that the injunction stayed or the injunction's not stayed. It talks about in same-sex marriage context and other things. Just a fascinating book. And uh, I write about the shadow docket some in my, my weekly column for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Uh, but just uh, figured while Pat was talking about the Illinois Supreme Court shadow docket, we might just mention the shadow docket at the Supreme Court of the United States. And some have expressed you know, concerns about it because, again, it's not fully briefed. There's not a lot of direction or guidance on what the court actually thinks. I think it's two things. I think it's important to actually three. Uh, the, the, it's important to, rec- to acknowledge the subtitle of Vladek's book how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the Republic. Yep. As it was described in the interview on the, uh, the Divided Ar- Argument podcast, uh, they described it as a um, uh, a, a very strong <laughs> subtitle. Yeah. Uh, I would I would commend the interview with him because you're dealing with real two two real good scholars in, yeah. in Epps and and and, uh, uh, and Bode regarding the. Uh, um, regarding those issues, uh, Bode is, of course, the person that is credited largely, although not entirely. There's a dispute over having coined the term shadow docket. And the third thing really is, is that shadow docket has this pejorative connotation to it. I'm not so sure I share it. They're the, the appellate courts don't have shadow dockets. Circuit courts don't have shadow dockets. It's the dockets. It's the highest courts that have these things, that have these plenary authorities, that can do all these things. And they don't have to hire merits if they don't want to. They can do what they want. Yeah. Uh, maybe we don't like it, but uh, they, they, they can. Uh, the problem becomes you gave them this power, not that they're exercising it. Um, I, I, I don't. Uh, uh, I, I'm not. I'm not as troubled by the shadow docket as many are, but I'm going to read Vladek's book anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm a bit uh, troubled by it. Yeah. You're certainly. I'm in the minority. Yeah, <laughs> as, as I want so many things. <laughs> I mean, a, a good example was was same sex marriage, and 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 uh, uh, in, in, in the year before Obergefell, uh, by not taking any actions, you know, eleven states ended up with same sex marriage, just by the court not addressing and by doing uh, simple uh, orders. Uh, what 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 happens? And one of the arguments for it, you know, against it. Uh, is again that that uh, you know we don't know you know who's doing it or, or or whatnot. So and and it's often again one of the things throughout history that that happens is it takes four to, to grant cert. Uh, sometimes the shadow dockets used because they're afraid to actually have the cases on the merits because they don't know where it's going. So um, yeah, but, but anyway, even those rules are rules they made up for themselves. So all, yeah, you won't find it anywhere, anywhere. Yeah, there's, so. there's, there's only rules, for, you know, whether it takes four, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that. That's a rule they made up for themselves. Um, so they can 
have, not have, amend, suspend, whatever rules they want. Uh, I get that it's 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 a court. Um, they do goofy it things, is. and sometimes it we is. don't know what they do. Um, in any yeah. event, so that's that was a really long segment. We've had shows shorter than this this segment. We have. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.